I have started and exited multiple companies. I am an avid investor in early stage companies. I advise some of the hottest startups and have worked with many of the top tech companies across numerous industries. I'm a software developer by trade, but I also have an MBA from Duke University. I seek out companies who defy conventional wisdom to drive innovation in any industry. And in this podcast, I interview the founders of those companies for you. Hello, folks, and thanks for listening to the Defiance Ventures podcast. I've got a yeah, great guest today. I met Nita Kerpalani recently and have enjoyed my conversations with her. Uh, she's interesting across two dimensions to me, among others. Uh, she was able to parlay her experience in a growing industry, namely healthcare, into a successful consulting career. I know a lot of my listeners and friends ask me about breaking out on their own from a strong corporate career. And I tell them it's not easy to do. So I definitely want to get into that story with Nita to hear how she was able to make that that leap. Uh, I also like what Nita is. Uh, I also like that she is strongly involved in the entrepreneurial community through work with Health Tech Women and uh, Springboard Enterprises Women's Health Tech Hub. I hope to talk about both of those today, and also about women in tech more broadly, as that uh, topic has come up on here a lot lately. Anita, thanks so much for joining me today on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much, John. Looking forward to it. Great. So um, first off, can you tell the listeners the type of work that you are doing uh, as Nita Kerpalani LLC? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So I launched my own consulting practice uh, about three years ago. Um, I had um, essentially transitioned out of a corporate career and was looking to do something different, was just looking to have a little more variety and was actually switching gears a bit, wanted to work with um, smaller kind of tech-based startups. And so, um, yeah, spent about three years uh, essentially working with early to mid-stage health tech uh, companies and startups in the Charlotte community, mostly um, working with them on their go-to-market strategy, so Mm -hmm. helping them align marketing and sales, biz dev, um, and some strategic planning in there as well, just helping them scale and grow. And so along the way, I um, just really got to know the entrepreneurial community in Charlotte really well. And just, um, and that's kind of how I, you know, got involved with Health Tech Women um, and learned about um, the health and healthcare ecosystem in Charlotte. And so um, for the last, I guess, few months, I would say six, seven months, have been working pretty exclusively with a, um, with actually a healthcare provider. So it's a little different than um, some of the tech companies, traditional tech companies. So I wanted to ask you about that, actually. So it it started out as more of the startups, but then you start working with more of the big industrial play or big players in the industry. Yeah. So I had an opportunity about six, seven months ago, was approached by, yeah, a larger healthcare provider in the Charlotte area and they were looking to grow their digital health team and so um, thought it was a great opportunity um, and joined essentially joined their um, yeah their digital health and engagement team and have really been working um, with that team and that organization to uh, 
which is actually very timely, help them grow their virtual care um, services, and then even think through emerging tech that maybe, you know, you know, they could use at some point, either build by partner um, in the future. So a little bit of um, still, you know, keeping my pulse on the health tech community, but also um, has really been a great opportunity to have direct, you know, impact on patient care. It's interesting because that was one of the things that we saw at Level was as we work with startups, inherent, just inherent in the nature of that they're selling to big established players. And so it's ironic because you actually end up adding a lot of value to both sides of the equation by serving both because you can provide the line of sight into what the health tech startups are thinking, but also you can for, for the big and big players in the industry, but you can also do it in the other direction. Did you see the same, do you see the same kind of dynamic where yeah. they feed off of one another? Oh, absolutely. And I feel like healthcare is at a point where it's actually been at a point where it's been pretty ripe for disruption. Mm -hmm. um, and we're now at a great sort of tipping point in the industry where, um, you know, not only how care is being delivered, but where it's being delivered is changing. And so, um, and so I think it's a great time to be in healthcare and it's been really awesome to be working, um, to be working with the provider and to understand the health tech side of it as well. Right. Mm -hmm. um, with all the smaller players who, who have, um, you know, offerings and capabilities that can really complement uh, what the providers are looking for. That, that's great. So what, what does an engagement for you typically look like? Are you contracting for some period of time or is it based on a certain deliverable or does it vary from client to client? Yeah, so um, I would say both. Historically, it's been a combination of, of um, deliverables. I mean, sometimes they're looking for very specific presentations or very specific analyses. Um, and other times it's more of really just filling almost like an interim type of role, right? So it could be for a period of time, they're looking for certain skill sets or certain um, capabilities. They might be building a team and looking for specific talent for a period of time. And so I've, um, I've had both deliverable-based um, engagements and then really more longer-term engagements as well. Do you have a preferable uh, or a preference on, on either, uh, e either of those engagement models? Yeah, I honestly, prefer the longer term engagements um, mm -hmm. where I am working closely with a team and helping them, you know, really build out their model or, or think through how to build out a team or, you know, thinking through talent gaps and um, bringing together, you know, working fairly cross-functionally. I think it's just, it helps me build relationships. Um, I think it's, you know, consulting in general is very relationship-based. And so I think anytime there's an opportunity to get to know the client and build those relationships, um, it seems to work well. Um, so that would probably be my preference. Awesome. And do you try to be full time on any one engagement or do you try to kind of have a multiple? I know right now you're working on with one particular client, it sounds like, but do you do you balance between multiple clients from time to time? Yeah, early on, I, I typically I balanced a lot. Um, and so it's interesting because early on when I was consulting, yeah, I would have several clients at a time and it was a lot more deliverable based. And so um, the advantage of that is that you get a lot of diversity, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you just never know what the, the deliverable will be and you're just sort of learning and absorbing. Um, I will say, yeah, the last, as I mentioned, the last seven months or so, I've been pretty exclusive uh, with one particular organization and, um, and have been on multiple projects with them. And so, um, 
and that's been, that's almost been, um, it's very similar, I would say, to the more, um, to the earlier when I was doing just deliverable, almost like lots of clients or several clients with very focused work. You've just now um, got multiple projects within yes, under one roof. Yeah, exactly. So in some ways it's similar. Um, yeah, in some ways it's similar, but I've, I've enjoyed both to be honest. So, so it sounds like the, the nature of the work that you're doing is what I would think of as strategy engagements or strategy consulting. Um, the, the thing with strategy is if you do your job, they ultimately want to build something or change something. <laughs> so yeah. can you maybe, when your clients want to go into implementation on those strategies, how do you help them? Will you get into the implementation? Do you have a network of people or what does that normally look like for you? Yeah. So some of it is, you know, implementation and a bit of change management, um, mm -hmm. principles and practices. And so I am a big proponent of um, strategy and execution. So I believe strategy, strategy in and of itself is valuable, but without the execution piece, it's uh, less valuable. And I, and I think the two, honestly, when you can tie strategy to the operations and how you're going to execute and then measure all that execution um, is really the best of it all. And so I actually will, my preference is to actually help them with implementation. And so um, I've done it in the past where I've, I've either referred out to other folks that have certain expertise and can help on the more technical side with the implementation. Um, but I've also almost worked as a, as a PM in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. To be like, okay, here's the implementation plan. We actually need at this point to um, have someone who can work with all these cross-functional stakeholders to execute and deliver. That's great. Yeah, that was one of the big insights we had at Level and when things really took off was that we, we started as an implementation shop and then we, we locked into hiring a couple of people who could do strategy consulting. And it's really powerful when you can come in and help somebody build the strategy and then they say, well, who do we hire? And you say, well, you can hire me <laughs> to, to actually do the work. People <laughs> like that. Work. Yeah. Because otherwise you end up with the McKinsey folks pointing their finger at the cognizant folks and the cognizant folks pointing their fingers back at McKinsey. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, I think it builds credibility with the client and it's, mm -hmm. to me, it's honestly gratifying and satisfying when you can mm -hmm. see the results um, from the upfront strategy work. So that's great. So how do you think about scaling your business? Yeah. I mean, over, it's been interesting over the past two to three years. I mean, it's sort of grown organically. A lot of it has been relationship based um, folks and just, just, building my network over a period of time. It's been folks I've worked with in the past and folks that have said, hey, have you heard about such and such? Um, she's doing such and such in the market. So organically, um, that's worked. I think I'm at a point probably where I really need to essentially build my brand a little more. I mean, mm -hmm. and it's not that I, you know, I will say, I've, you know, I've got a basic website. I've done some blogging on LinkedIn, but I would say I'm at a point where in the future, if I want to really grow it, I think investing in that, um, investing in a brand strategy and, and you know, hiring, um, you know, marketing talent to help with content marketing. And um, I that's think interesting. That's, yeah, yeah. So one of the things um, I, I heard a really interesting podcast on the Aubrey Marcus podcast um, where he interviewed Mark Sisson, who was, is, was Mark's Daily Apple. And he ended up creating a 
brand primal kitchen i think it's called primal kitchen but he, he i think he recently sold it for close to 200 million dollars to craft or some large food company and and they and aubrey asked mark about how do you think about building your own brand versus building your business's brand and this is something that i i i think about a lot and that i think a lot of people do but he he said look for me it was build the personal brand first because you're also building your business brand and he said the reality was in his case he didn't know what he wanted to sell. He, he had to rebuild because he had invested in a flawed, a business model that was dying infomercials. And yeah. he said, I'm just going to write a blog every day. And I think he wrote a blog post every day for three or four years, which he called Mark's <laughs> Daily Apple. And I read the blog post. And I remember all of a sudden I started buying Primal Kitchen Mayo on Thrive Market. And I didn't really know why. <laughs> and, and he pointed it out. He said, look, if I had thought about Primal Kitchen first, I don't know if I could have built that brand. But by committing to doing podcasts and doing blogging and, and creating content that is establishing me as an expert, I was, I was eventually able to leverage that, which may, may be instructive in, in your case as well. Yeah. I mean, part of it has been also you know, making sure I have the time, right? I'm, yeah. I'm dedicating the time to it. Um, and yeah, and I think that I will. And I also think just leveraging talent in the market, right? Yeah. Um, that can help me with that. Absolutely. Well, I saw on LinkedIn uh, that you're hiring a marketing specialist. Are, are there other staff members at this point? Or how do, you, how do you think about staffing? And how do you see that growing in the coming years? Yeah, no, great question. So um, the marketing specialist was actually specific to health tech women. So mm -hmm. we are, um, the organ it's a nonprofit organization that I've been um, working pretty closely with the Charlotte community and e then even we're connected um, to the national uh, hub based out of San Francisco as well. And so um, that team was, uh, we're growing that organization and that team as well. And so we're, we're looking for um, marketing talent and it's been a great opportunity to, to hire um, even just interns, right. To help grow mm -hmm. that brand and grow that organization. Um, on my consulting practice, yeah, I'm at a point where probably in the next six to 12 months could definitely see hiring um, some marketing support. And it's interesting, I never, I guess never say never, I never thought I'd get to the point where administratively I wouldn't be able to keep up with things, but I, <laughs> I guess it's gotten to the point where I'm like, I'm spending weekends, like, you know, doing taxes and, you know, it's, it gets to the mm -hmm. point where it's like, okay, would it be best if, you know, I hire some talent to help with yeah. just managing some of those backend functions? Well, it's funny because um, in our case with Level, Chris and I were the only two people working on it. He was my co-founder and we did all the billing. I mean, billable work. We did all the yeah. selling. Uh, we would create quick, quick invoices on a client site yeah. at the end of each month. And, uh, yeah. and, and it just got to a point and we had started the company because we wanted to generate some cash for another project we were working on. And we were so busy that we weren't working on that other project. And so we, once we took that leap six months later and hired the first employee, that's when everything really took off. And then we didn't hire an administrative employee so we were probably 25, 30 people and, and we waited too long. And then we waited too long to hire a recruiter. We waited too long to hire someone into HR. We waited too long to hire marketing. <laughs> it, was a, it was a constant thing. Not that, not that you can ever stick that landing, but, but my advice would, not that you asked, but would certainly be as soon as you feel comfortable financially with 
paying that because that was the hardest part for us. We're like, we can barely pay can ourselves. Can you justify? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and it's, it it's different to not pay yourself than it is to not pay somebody yeah. else. Yeah, <laughs> especially on a recurring, you know, on a yeah. in this environment too. It's just, yeah. So I've, I've, I guess I have been pretty conservative about it up until mm -hmm. this point. Um, and it hasn't, I guess it hasn't gotten to the point where it's like painful just yet, but I feel like it's, it's going to get there. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, to this, up to this point, I've been kind of a, you know, one, one woman shop, I should say. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And, and, and I think as long as you can run it yourself, you should, but yeah. I, I would encourage you when you get to that breaking point, it's, if you can find the right person, it can make all the difference and it just motivates you. Now you got a mouth to feed, you work twice as hard. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cool. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, your history and how you got out uh, into being on your own. You mentioned that you were working in industry and then, and then you ended up um, uh, making that jump. Can you kind of walk us through undergrad, grad school, early career? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I, um, yeah, I went to undergrad at Wake Forest. Um, like many other um, young aspiring students, I was pre-med and um, obviously did not go the medical school route. So I actually, after undergrad, spent uh, five years um, in the nonprofit industry. So um, worked for um, a Habitat for Humanity affiliate here in Asheville, and then actually moved down to Birmingham, Alabama, and worked for uh, a small nonprofit down there as well. And so um, kind of got my, I got my master's in public health down in Birmingham. I'd always, I always knew I wanted to be in healthcare. And so for me, that was never the question um, and sort of, I guess, parlayed into a public health career, essentially. After five years for nonprofits, I'd gotten to a point where I was ready for essentially my next pivot uh, and was ready to, to move into, um, yeah, a corporate career and went back full time to get my MBA. And so, I mean, at that point, I remember sitting in the sitting in, I think it was either a finance or accounting class. I mean, I couldn't tell you what a profit and loss statement looked like. I mean, it was just, so it was, I mean, I, for me, my MBA was great, right? It was just like total pivot, just learning and absorbing. Um, and after my MBA, I uh, took a position with a company called Premier. I had the opportunity to intern with them as well during my MBA and found they were a great fit. So that was actually my transition to the Charlotte community and Charlotte area around 2010. So, um, so had been with Premier for, I spent seven years with Premier in Charlotte. So essentially, um, you know, good, a good amount of time. And during that time, um, saw them through pretty significant milestones. And so I uh, was on their supply chain team for the first couple of years. And then they were getting ready to go public and there was an opportunity to join their corporate development team. And so joined that team after a couple years and essentially uh, was on the IPO team. They acquired, I think, 13 or 14 companies in three and a half years. So that was really my, my foray or my, um, my background. That's really where probably I leveraged a ton of my experience in corporate strategy and corporate development. That's great. Yeah. And, and yeah. I also feel like doing M&A work is about the most entrepreneurial thing you can do inside yeah. of a publicly traded organization. Yeah. I mean, we were just moving fast and furious, just, you know, I mean, decisions every day, you just, you look back and I can't even remember those years because you're just doing so much, but you're also learning so much. So it was a great opportunity. 
Yep. So, so you mentioned doing an MBA. I did an MBA as well myself. What advice do you give to people who are considering uh, getting an MBA and, and, but also think that they want to be an entrepreneur or in healthcare, I guess, either, either one. Yeah. Um, it's great that you ask. I actually have a colleague and coworker, uh, who is looking to get his MBA at Duke this fall. And we were just having this conversation today. Um, and I think it's great. I think for, I think, you know, I'm, yes, <laughs> um, yeah, he's, um, he, you know, I think for anybody who's, who's interested in, I'm a big proponent of higher education. I've got, you know, two master's degrees. Um, I think for him and, and anybody looking to get their MBA, it's a great way to broaden your skill set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe even do things you've not done before. And so, um, you know, I think folks that are, for me, at least when I was getting my MBA, it was a way to pivot my career. Like I said, I had no formal business background. And so great learning opportunity. I went, I did it full time. So just was absorbing a ton, learning a ton. Um, you work pretty collaboratively with teams. And so you learn not just like those tactical skills or those hard skills but you learn a ton of just like soft skills as well which i think can be invaluable um, i, so I agree me, that's i think that's just in general the value of higher ed you know yeah. so i think there's a network effect too just you, you you build your network in a way that's that's hard to do without the mba it's not it's not it doesn't mean you don't have to go do networking you still have to go network but i found it to be a real catalyst for that side too yeah so yeah, was, exactly. Um, I think for folk. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, John. No, no. Oh, no, we're no, good. no. I, we we had a little bit of a blip there, so I, I I didn't realize you were about to say something. Please go ahead. Yeah, no worries. I was like, I hope I'm. Um, I know my internet connection can be a little waffly, but I think we're back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're good. We've we've had a tiny bit of chop, but I don't think anything too distracting. So. <laughs> awesome. So was there a specific moment after the MBA where you knew you had to go out on your own or, were, or was there something that something that was building up that made you say, I'm ready to go out on my own now? Yeah. Um, for me, I was ready. I was at a point with Premier where I had essentially hit a growth ceiling. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it was a, you know, the decision was I would either go, you know, work for a big, you know, another big organization or I'd go work for a startup or I'd do my own thing. And so I was at a point financially where I could do my own thing. Um, and it even personally, you know, I didn't, I would, didn't have, um, I didn't have any mouths to feed. And so <laughs> there was, if I was like, you know, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to do it and take the risk, timing was great and perfect. And so I said, why not? Um, I think I was also at a point where I was looking, like I said, to have that diversity in, in projects and diversity with clients. And so um, at that point, didn't want to be dedicated to just one company or one organization. And so that was really what prompted it was just, you know, I'm going to explore and give myself the time and energy to do so. Did you know anybody that was a consultant at that point? Because it, it is hard for some people to make the jump from industry to consulting without because it's it's a different beast. I mean, it's it's a very yeah. different beast. Yeah, I I knew consult. I knew plenty of consultants who worked for big consulting firms, um, but didn't know 
didn't know like any, you know, solo consultants, but it's interesting because once I started my consulting business and it was like, I was out networking and naturally just sort of built my network and met a ton of uh, individual consultants or small practice consultants. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm definitely glad I did it and have found it to be really fruitful. So what was the hardest part about going out on your own? You mentioned that you had the financial runway and the personal runway, but what was, what, what was still hard about doing it? Yeah. And I still, and I'll be honest, I still think it's hard for me. It's, it is a lot of business development and sales. And I think I had underestimated exactly how much, um, especially in the beginning that it was just, it was just, and it was like, I didn't quite know what I didn't know. Right. So it's like convincing people. I had all the, like, I had all the experience, but you know, it was like, okay, here's what I'm going to sell and I'm going to try and sell it. And so, you know, it took me, I would say a good 12 to 18 months to sort of figure that out. Um, exactly what my services were going to be, exactly what I was going to deliver, exactly how I was going to do it. Um, what my sales, you know, sales, sales funnel looked like, what my sales, um, conversions looked, I mean, all of that. How did you land patient zero or that first customer? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it was actually through my network. So I had a colleague who worked, uh, who worked with me at premier in marketing and he was in marketing and I was in strategy. We worked on, you know, worked closely together, worked on the same floor, and so he sent me a note and said, hey, I, you know, he was working with a, a company in, in Charlotte, small tech company. He said, hey, you know, we're looking for somebody who could help with X, Y, Z. You know, we see that you are consulting, uh, would love to grab a cup of coffee and maybe there's a good fit. And so just relationship network based. That, that's great. Um, I've, I've talked a little bit with folks on this podcast with, with guests about how we built it at Level and the first we, we got to 4 million a year in revenue just selling the way that you just described. And that's why I tell people, if you think you're ever going to want to go out on your own, even if you don't want to go out on your own, you better invest in your network because that yeah. network is your best sales tool that you have. And then when you start to hire, that network is also the best way to hire people as well. Yeah, it's exactly. I think just don't underestimate the power of relationships and the power of building that network. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So how do you see your business changing in a COVID-19 world? You, meant, you mentioned it sounds like you're seeing some positive impacts in terms of people wanting to deliver telemedicine or virtual, deliver things virtually. Yeah. I mean, that obviously requires a shift in strategy. Have there been any other things that are changing your business in this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I will say... Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is a ton of demand in the market for virtual care and digital care. Um, and I would say it's actually fundamentally shifted, to some extent, the way care is delivered. Um, so I mean, even on the provider side for physicians and clinicians, right, they're having to learn how to deliver care virtually. Um, and so I think, I think there are positives to all of that. You know, I will say the one thing that I think in healthcare, <laughs> healthcare reimbursement models and the financial side of healthcare has always lagged. Um, you know, I feel like technology and what patients want and what consumers want is all the way out here. And yet how, you know, how those services and, and are being paid for, there's like almost like a 10 year decade difference, right? 
Absolutely. in terms of reimbursement models and and um, how those services are being paid for. But I think we are now finally at a point where some of that is catching up. And so it's great. We're seeing, you know, parity in the market for, you know, virtual care services. And I think it's been a fundamental shift, even in how government payers, Medicare and Medicaid are, are reimbursing for those services. So I think it's great. I think, you know, again, I think it's been, it's been disruptive to healthcare, but in a good way. So Excellent. to me, that's, that's a win-win. So what were the biggest trends in healthcare you were looking at prior to the outbreak? Yeah, prior to the outbreak, um, some of those trends, you know, we're, we were still considering. So you know, keeping our pulse on reimbursement and payer policies. Um, but, you know, I think prior to the outbreak, <laughs> We were always trying to, at least in digital health and virtual care, I say, convince patients and providers as to why, you know, why would you want to do, you know, why would you want to incorporate these wearables into care delivery? Or why would you want to, you know, track these biometrics? And it's now at a point where they're like, oh, it's, we can see the value in it. Um, so... That's interesting because we, we see that in a lot of industries where there were just, there were things that were already happening, but that this was a real catalyst. I interviewed a lady who owns a yoga studio here in Charlotte and she, her capacity was 52 people um, in her studio. And she, so she did the logical thing. Once she started maxing that out, she went and found a longer, a bigger lease. And, but, but then she thought about virtual and she was, and I asked her, I was like, did you do virtual before? And she said, no, cause I, I couldn't figure out how to do it exactly right. And I wanted to have the lighting and I wanted to have this and that, and, but I was making enough money. <laughs> and then, uh, and, and she hasn't been able to move into the bigger, in, into the bigger space yet, but she's now getting hundred to 150 paying customers showing up on zoom four times a week. Um, and, and it's like, you could have done this a year ago, a year two ago. years ago. You know? Yeah. But, but 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 you understand why if you've got a model that works, change is, is scary. But when change is required to survive, it's, yeah. it can be a really interesting catalyst for sure. And you can make that change, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that can be powerful. I guess the other thing too is one major trend I would say, which it's not that it wasn't there. I mean, it was certainly present in the market, but I think it's more of an acceleration has been almost like this idea of integrative medicine. So how do we take care of not just the patient, but take care of the patient as a whole human being? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing um, not only just a ton of demand in the market for patients for these types of services, but literally things like acupuncture mm -hmm. and, you know, how do they do, you know, yoga at home? How do they incorporate uh, nutrition and almost like this social meditation? Yeah, yes, yeah. all of that that addresses more of their mental health or behavioral health and the social determinants of health that really impact, um, impact, you know, health and health care for each of them. So. Yeah, I interviewed the CEO of um, Welcome MD. They're, a they're an executive medicine practice. And Linda was talking about how they're seeing a big shift now to people. Because a big thing that her practice has always preached is you need to be more preventative. It's cheaper to prevent than it is to, to, to treat. And she, and she said because of, uh, we, we all see in the news that there are all sorts of different comorbidity factors with COVID. 
and who knows what the real answer is, but it's pretty obvious that if, if you're generally more healthy, you're generally going to do better. And it's the same thing with flu or pneumonia or anything really. Yeah. And, she, and she said a big part of her job prior to the pandemic was just convincing people that they should think about preventative medicine. <laughs> and, and now that's not a problem. I think people are getting the message. They get it. Yeah. Like I said, it's been, I mean, in, in some ways, I think that there are, I think there will be great things that will come out of this, you mm -hmm. know, in the end. So I, I think so too. Um, so I'm curious, I mentioned in the intro that you get involved in the tech startup scene. You've, you've talked about the, the, the groups that you're working with there. Um, and, and I actually met you through those when I wanted to promote the interview with, with Linda. I got introduced to you through, through two different mechanisms. Um, I'm curious as being involved in this scene, um, what has changed most in Charlotte since you started getting involved and how long ago did you start getting involved and in not, not just those two particular organizations, but the broader startup scene? Yeah. So I would say the broader startup scene. I mean, I would actually say I was fairly involved with the startup scene and at least aware of it, even during my time with premier, because mm -hmm. we were constantly evaluating uh, you know, tech companies um, and, and startups that could essentially, you know, enhance our portfolio, help us build out capabilities that we didn't have. And so I would say probably, probably been aware of the startup scene in Charlotte for at least five or six years. Mm -hmm. I will say it has significantly grown in the last probably three to four years. Um, and I don't know if that's um, just natural due to kind of the merging of, of different, you know, factors. I think we've got an interest in entrepreneurship from, you know, different organizations. I think there's, you know, even education, you know, universities and um, educational organizations are putting an emphasis on health, on innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of that innovation starts with, um, kind of bringing together small startups and tech companies with larger organizations to drive change and to drive disruption and drive innovation. So I think there's been certainly an acceleration in the Charlotte market in the last, yeah, probably four to five years. When I think, what I think is interesting is that I think all the right players are, are present in the Charlotte market. I mean, before, COVID-19 on any given day, you could go to 20 events in the mm -hmm. Charlotte market, right? I mean, it yeah. was literally, there was a plethora of events and, and opportunities to engage. I think it would be awesome and I would love to see the Charlotte community come together in a way to actually drive that change. And so I think that's gonna take, you know, public-private sector collaboration, participation from, you know, the government and mm -hmm. from the city, um, you know, with capital invested and resources invested to actually drive that innovation and, and build that ecosystem. So that's, that's where I would love to see um, the Charlotte startup community and ecosystem go in the next five years. Yeah, it's, it is. It's great. I, I probably started getting involved about 10 years ago. Um, and, and it, it moved slowly for the first three or four years of that. And then I don't know what it was that started picking up. I think part of it is success stories. I think that, you know, Igor sold Yap, 
to to Amazon, which was a big game changer. Yeah. And and then there were a couple of other exits. Um, my business partner currently, Tarek Amin, sold DC seventy four. Uh, Peak ten was sold. Uh, Map anything was sold, which my partner Tarek was involved with um, fairly early on. But I think the more of those that you see. Um, that makes people understand and appreciate the community that much more and that much more ready to in invest into it. And when people see things being celebrated in the media, yeah. in events, I think that that drives an excitement that's, that's hard to do without having some, some of those success stories. Yeah. I mean, success brings success, right? So yep. agree. Absolutely. What would you like to see change in this scene? Like what, what, where, where do you think we're still weak in Charlotte? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I'd love to see there be, and I think it exists in certain areas and pockets, but I'd love to see there be more leadership in Charlotte around it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that there, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's with pockets, there's, you know, leaders that, you know, tech being leaders that, uh, you know, probably within the government leaders that exist within um, the educational community, but would love to see almost like like a leadership council or some sort of you know governing body that can really bring it all together. If that makes sense, and really help shepherd some of these changes and, and shepherd um, the building of that ecosystem uh, over yeah. time. Yeah, I agree. There's a group called ATDC in Atlanta that seems to do a really good job with that on the Georgia Tech campus. And it's, it's an interesting collaboration. You've got public, private, um, academia and with Georgia Tech. And that may be UNC Charlotte's a great school, but it's, you know, Georgia Tech's a little bit, got a little bit more resources and, yeah. and research capabilities for that, that type of thing. But hopefully, as, as the businesses continue to invest in, in UNC Charlotte and as the city and the, and, and the state invest in it, um, ho hopefully it can step up and play that kind of role. Because it does seem like the best entrepreneurial communities have that collaboration between city officials, economic development officials, but the, the research universities are a really important component of that. Component, yeah. yeah. I mean, what I had heard, um, and this was even recently as of a few months ago, is I think, I do think some startups have difficulty with access to capital. So, you know, they have to travel to San Francisco and to New York and to raise capital. And so to me, that's not sustainable, right? Like I'd love there to be enough capital uh, in the Charlotte community, in the Carolinas to where they shouldn't have to go to San Francisco or New York or Chicago or Boston to raise the capital mm -hmm. they need. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, there are funds now that are actively coming to to these cities. So I'm, I'm going to be interviewing a, guy, a gentleman on the podcast soon who worked with Steve Case for a while before going out and starting a couple of companies. And Steve Case has been very adamant that the rest of the world or the rest of the the, re the rest of the US besides Austin, New York and San Francisco can can create startups. And, and they've put their money where their mouth is. I actually, I mentioned Igor, Igor Jablikov from Yap, his new company, Prion, uh, raised, I think, a $20 million round led by Rise of the Rest, which is a revolution fund started That's by awesome. um, 
started by Steve Case. So I think people are starting to figure it out. I always argue that money finds returns wherever those returns are. are. Um, but, but it is hard to your point. If I've got to get on a plane and fly to the valley three times a week to go pitch my startup to see. It's that's, a hurdle. That's challenging. Yeah. Maybe some of these trends to virtualization and remote um, communication will, <laughs> will translate over. <laughs> um, so what are your personal favorite events or resources in, in the Charlotte startup community? Yeah. Um, great question. I, so I am at, um, a few different ones. I mean, Pat, I was a member at several of the co-working spaces when I originally started my consulting practices. So I'm a huge fan. I know they're, um, they're a little, it's a little bit challenging, right? Physically to be, um, at a co-working spot, um, given COVID-19, but I think there's still ways to engage. I mean, I know I was a member at Packard Place and found, uh, the connections there to be invaluable um, was also a member at Advent co-working for a period of time. Mm -hmm. So I think co-working spaces are a great way to connect with other entrepreneurs uh, within the ecosystem and startups within the ecosystem. Um, I also attended, um, I think pitch breakfast was one of my favorite. I mean, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd never even attended a pitch event before pitch breakfast. And so I, I pitched in their inaugural event. Oh, um, really? So that's I, a, it's near cool. and dear to my heart. Yeah. yeah no, that's one of my favorites and they've gone virtual. They've done two virtually now. So that's, that's awesome. Great. I also think Dan Roselli's keg, uh, keg side chats, chats are awesome, which they've are done. Fun. Yeah. They've done yeah. a handful of those virtually as well. So I'm looking yeah. forward to when these events come back to in person, but, but the virtual events are great for anybody who's listening. You, sh you should definitely be attending. Those. Check them out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So pitch, you know, I think pitch breakfast is great. I think, um, and you know, even all the different, there's, there's definitely a ton of um, pitch events in the Charlotte market. So there's ways to connect essentially investors with um, folks looking for capital and then just, you know, individuals and companies looking to learn about the process. Um, so those would probably be, I mean, I, I will say like on the health tech, um, on the women in tech scene, health tech women was um, invaluable for, for helping me connect with the women in tech scene in Charlotte and an even broader within, um, within the U.S. Um, and how, and how I, did you, I will how did, say a couple oops, of the sorry. other, yeah, no, go ahead, John. I was going to say, how, how did you get involved with, with uh, health tech women? women. Yeah, um, I got involved through my colleague, Sasha Cahill. So Sasha's actually the Charlotte hub director and a mutual friend of ours uh, connected the two of us and said, hey, you know, you're both women in tech and you're both in healthcare and um, looks like you're, you know, looking to build this community and get connected. So I got connected to Sasha probably, it's probably been about three years ago when I uh, started my consulting practice and we were looking, she was looking to essentially build out the Charlotte chapter. So she knew the founder, uh, Carla Brenner, Brenner, who based out of San Francisco, who was really growing the organization. And essentially it's, it's an organization that is looking to advance women leaders in the health and health tech community and really drive innovation uh, in healthcare. And so for me, it was just an opportunity to get to know that community and um, have really found the relationships to be invaluable for me over the last um, the last three years or so. So it's been fun. 
it's almost like a side passion project. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think getting involved in, in things like that, that you're passionate about helps you, your career, not just in tactical ways, but it's just, it, it, there's something that changes in you and the way you think about things when you're involved in those, those kind of organizations. I'm beyond the networking and the opportunities that they create directly. Yeah. A couple other organizations in Charlotte, and I guess these would be to healthcare. Um, one would be Scott, Scott Pope's organization, Carolina Health Innovators, um, has been great for driving health and health innovation. And then um, the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs is the other one that I think has been great. Um, the Society, I'm sorry. Doing great things for and, and yeah, 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 it broke up a little bit, but it's fine. What, what, it was the society of what? Yeah, Society for Physician Entrepreneurs. Just writing this down, I'll add it to the show notes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry about um, unstable internet connection. Working oh, it's, from home. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's funny. Um, there's a handful of podcasts that I listen to. Joe Rogan is the biggest podcaster of all. And he's done it. Normally, he doesn't do remote. I think Edward Snowden was one of two that he had ever done remotely. But lately, he's had to do a couple more remotely. And and even on his with tens and tens of millions of listeners, it's uh, like, people are used to it. It's just part, part of uh, technology these days. <laughs> yeah, I guess you just roll with it, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. So you clearly volunteer with a women in tech theme. Um, I, I like that a lot. I'm often chastised, rightly so, for not having enough women on the podcast. And 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 level, you know, we there, there was a point where we had on our website our leadership team was nine to zero men men to women, and um, it it doesn't make me feel that much better that I can say that it's a general theme in tech, but. Uh, but but we, we we did address it and I, and I've been working to address it on the podcast as well. But it does seem like there's much more awareness about this this deficiency over the past call it five years, but especially the past couple of years. What do you think is driving this heightened awareness of this of this lack of inclusion of women in, in technology? Yeah, I think you know I think women have a unique perspective to offer and can bring a lot to the table. Um, I don't think it, you know, was anyone's fault, right, <laughs> that women were maybe excluded for a period of time. I think it's, um, if you look at other industries, it's happened in other industries as well. Um, I, I think what's happened over time is that it's probably a culmination of women actually being in tech and being, you know, wanting to be more invested, right, in their careers, wanting to be invested in the technology industry uh, and then a realization that women have a lot to offer right mm -hmm. um, and diversity is a good thing and inclusion is a good thing and so you know we're seeing you know women not only not only from a workport you know workforce and, and talent perspective um, being brought to the table but I think we're even seeing, you know, more women sitting on boards and more women um, being able to, you know, be in leadership positions where they have the authority to make decisions. And so I think that's a good thing. Um, I think it's a good thing that, you know, organizations and companies are realizing that, um, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be that, um, I guess it shouldn't be 
I'm trying to figure out how to say this. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, like, no. How do I say this? No, no, it's, no. It's, no problem. I, I was going to say, and this might, might be where you're going. I, I think that I, I'm, I'm curious what you think the biggest reasons that companies and investors need to be more inclusive of women, both on the tech side and as entrepreneurs. And for me, part of the part of it is the same reason that Hollywood should be inclusive of both, right? Men and right. women have different uses of, of, of media and content and movies. And, and, and it is hard for men to understand the needs of women in, in technology. But I think it's probably something deeper than that. But that's, a, to me, a real tactical reason. If, you, yeah. if you're trying to sell to 100% of the population and you're only designing it with 50% of the population, you, you might miss what you need on the other, other half. Yeah, essentially, it's like designing with, not for, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and I think the other, the other thing, too, is that we're seeing a lot more, I think, historically, like finance, the finance industry is a great example, where if you didn't have a finance background, you weren't considered for a finance career, right? And so there was not this ton of like cross-industry, cross-sector collaboration, and that's all changing. I mean, now, you know, industries are looking for talent from outside of their industry. Mm -hmm. And so we've got, you know, folks in, in, in the technology industry being hired from, you know, the investment banking world and the manufacturing world and from the entertainment industry. And I think that's great because it adds diversity and diverse perspective um, to the table and can, um, and can bring a lot of value. Yep. No, I, I agree. I agree. And it's great to see the mindset changing and people thinking about that um, up, up front, because I, I do think that it's that there are a lot of benefits to being more inclusive. On the other side of it, though, what's the biggest challenge that women face in a tech career or in an I mean, increasingly tech and entrepreneurialism are the same, you know, kind of interchangeable, but, but there are still probably some differences between the two. But what do you think are the biggest challenges that women face in, in either of these careers? Yeah, probably um, probably some of the same challenges they've faced in the past. I mean, I can tell you from my own perspective, you know, as a woman in tech, it's it's I feel like I have to like I've really got to know my stuff, you know, before I can come to the table. It's not enough for me to just be like, well, I've read the chapter in the book. I'm good. No, I have to have made sure that I've read it upside down, sideways, be able to be graded on it, tested on it, answer to it. It is like, I really have to be prepared. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and in some ways that's good, you know, but it's also, it can be a disadvantage as well. And so, and I don't, I don't think that's a new challenge. I think that's a challenge that's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, I would see that as a, a pretty current challenge still. Yep. So, so for women who are looking to get into either tech and or uh, entrepreneurialism, um, are there any resources that you would like to plug books or websites or, or you already mentioned a handful of events and organizations, but are there any other resources that you really like specific for women? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, yes. I mean, I guess on the healthcare side, HIMSS, H-I-M-S-S, -S, is a huge technology organization and health care. So um, if you're interested in healthcare, if you're interested in technology within healthcare, HIMSS is a great organization mm -hmm. um, for getting you plugged in, I would say. And then um, 
I guess just even more broadly speaking than that, just with technology as a whole. I mean, even I've, I've even considered, I mean, doing boot camps, right? I mean, you, mm -hmm. I mean, UNC Charlotte offers boot camps on, you know, coding and just um, kind of like data science for dummies, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just literally just um, for me, I'm somebody who has to actually do it to learn it. So I think anytime you can take a, you know, even if it's just a certificate course to get a crash course in um, the fundamentals of technology or whatever application it is you're trying to learn about, I think that's, for me, that's been pretty valuable. Yeah, I highly advise to anybody who can afford a boot camp and can take the time off to do it, that they're very useful. We did a lot of hiring at level out of Tech Talent South, a local homegrown, yes. women-owned um, woman yeah. uh, uh, coding boot camp. And there were a lot of really, really good developers to come out of there who had not been doing development six weeks prior to that. I mean, it, you, you can't become an expert in six weeks, but you can learn enough to where you find the right organization and you get paired with a good set of mentors and you can really, really yeah. change your career. I mean, yeah, one thing I'm actually doing right now, which um, is learning more about technology architecture. And mm -hmm. so um, I'm, I'm doing it with an organization called IASA, I-A-S-A, but essentially it's really helping. It's more of, um, frameworks for business technology, like people processes and, and technology to drive results. And so uh, that's been interesting for me just because I, you know, I've had, I have a business background, a strategy mm -hmm. background, um, have obviously been working with technology companies for the last few years, but don't have a hard technical sort of background. So that's been, that's been great. And that was IASA? Yeah. Okay. IASA. Awesome. I'll look that up and, and provide a link to that in the show notes. So do you think is, is healthcare any better or worse as a starting point for women relative to other industries? Um, I would say it's probably, you know, I would actually say healthcare is, I would actually say healthcare is slightly better. Um, in other industries. I think healthcare, healthcare requires a level of empathy because, and every single person is a patient. Like it mm -hmm. literally impacts every human being on the planet at some point. And yep. so um, to me, and, I, and I'm the kind of person where I'm very mission driven. Um, and so to me as a, as a woman, it's important that, you know, whatever I'm involved with, I believe in the mission, um, sometimes over profits, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, it's a mission driven industry. And so for that reason, I do think it, it draws a lot of women uh, just cause there's, you know, there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of, you know, you, you want to make a difference and you know, you're making a difference. And so mm -hmm. for that reason, and I actually think it's, and I also think it's, it's ripe for disruption. We're seeing a lot of women taking leadership positions with health, you know, big healthcare organizations where historically that hasn't occurred. Yep. And we're seeing a lot of women um, getting involved in the health tech scene, um, even on the investing side, uh, on the finance side. And so I think these are all good things. Great. Yeah. It seems like an industry that is maybe a little further along on, on the inclusiveness front there. So 
you you mentioned you did a lot of work early in your career in the nonprofit space. How do you compare nonprofits with healthcare? First off, yeah. So I did. I spent five years with nonprofits, uh, and obviously, I'm still involved with uh, several of them now. Um, I would say there's there's several uh, there's several overlaps. I mean. Nonprofits are typically also very mission driven. And so obviously there's um, overlap there with healthcare. I also think in general, uh, many healthcare provider organizations are nonprofit organizations. And so I think sometimes people don't realize that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, many of our large health systems across the United States are actually not-for-profit organizations. Yeah, I knew, I knew Novant was. Is Atrium a nonprofit, a nonprofit as well? Yes, I believe so. Don't quote me on it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I believe so. Um, and yeah, I believe so. So How, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, so that's nonprofits compared to healthcare, which obviously a lot of healthcare, large or large healthcare organizations are organized that way. How would you compare nonprofits compared to for-profits more broadly outside of healthcare? Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, not yeah, I guess nonprofits, more broadly speaking, are, I mean, there's obviously different business models in play. You know, I think sometimes people think just because it's a nonprofit means it shouldn't make money. And that's not true at all. <laughs> you know, I, it's I've, really. Go I've, got a, I've got a favorite example of that. One of the most recognizable brands in the world is Rolex. And they're a nonprofit. They're a nonprofit. <laughs> they're making yes. a lot of money, but they're not returning it to shareholders is what, what it really means being a nonprofit, right? <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's, 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 I mean, sometimes the business models are, um, you know, sometimes business models can be slightly different for not for nonprofits than for profits. But yeah, to your point, John, I think it's really just about, you know, who are the customers? Who are the stakeholders? Are there shareholders? Um, and ultimately, you know, where are the, where is the return going, right, mm -hmm. of the profits? So to me, that's the biggest, that's really the biggest difference between not-for-profits and for-profits. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, typically also, to some extent, not-for-profits and for-profits do have different um, governance requirements, different kind of mm -hmm. board structures. Those are uh, typically the biggest, biggest differences as well. Well, well, Nita, this has been great. I, uh, I thank you for joining me and sharing your story on a Friday. Um, I hope you have a, a great weekend. And again, thank you so much for joining. Awesome. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Have a good right. weekend. Thanks, you too. All right. Bye-bye. Okay.